Please find in your copy of God's Word, Ecclesiastes chapter 2, where our pastor will continue our series. We'll begin our reading in verse 18 of Ecclesiastes chapter 2. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For, the two, for to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. This is the word of the Lord. in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them, before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the dust returns to the earth as it was and the spirit returns to God who gave it, all is vanity. Well, I think if my calculations are right that this is week five, we're in our fifth sermon in Ecclesiastes as we move our way through this, really a discourse from a professor whom we think is Solomon, and it's been a great study so far, and I'm looking forward to moving forward throughout this book as there becomes more and more hope as you move through it. Let me lead us in prayer once more, and we will dive into this next section. Father, your word is from you, 
And in order to preach it and understand it, we must be granted gifts of understanding and clarity and help. So we ask you to, according to your boundless generosity toward us, that you would be pleased this morning to dispense those gifts to us as we sit here. The gift of attention, the gift of focus, the gift of clarity, the gift of power, the gift of meek reception, the gift of humble submission, the gift of practical action, the gift of faith, the gift of repentance, the gift of the Holy Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our culture, politically speaking, as most of us know, I think, who have uh, taken a class or two or just lived in this country long enough, politically speaking, we are a democracy. We believe that we should elect our representatives, and those representatives should have uh, delegated rule, that they should rule in our place, they should make decisions in our place. And so there is a sense in which we as a country, the, the power of our country and the political system of our, of, our, of our country rests in the people. But socially speaking, our country has been called a meritocracy. Not a democracy, but a meritocracy. Meaning that part of our culture is saturated, or I should say the whole of our culture is saturated with this idea of merit, of achievement. That your worth and your value is judged based upon how much you contribute. How much you are, your value is, is tied to how well you perform or how much you achieve. In his brand new book, One Way Love, Inexhaustible Grace for an Exhausted World, which I would recommend to you, it just came out this week, by Tullian Chivijan, he writes in his introduction the following, quote, What I see more than anything else in our culture, is an unquestioning embrace of performanceism in all sectors of life. Performanceism is the mindset that equates our identity and value directly with our performance and accomplishments. We spend our lives frantically propping up our images and reputation, trying to do it all and do it all well often at a cost to ourselves and those we love. Life becomes a hamster wheel of endless earning and proving and maintenance and management and controlling where all we can see is our own feet. Performanceism causes us to live in a constant state of anxiety, fear, and resentment until we end up heavily medicated, in the hospital, or just really, really unhappy. End quote. We often think that sometimes, or some people can often think that the Bible is irrelevant. That the things that are in scripture really were for old times. They don't really have any application to today. But the reality is, is that that's true for the vast percentage of us and of our culture. And that was Solomon's experience in the book of Ecclesiastes and in our text today. It's extremely relevant for where we are right now. Because the quest for, to prove yourself by your achievements and validate your worth by what you do is as old as Genesis 11. Where if you were in the gospel project this morning and you heard about that text, 
You'll recall that's the first attempt of man to make a monument for himself. To, to, to determine his worth, not from what God has said about him or who he is in relationship to God, but rather what he can do and what he can attain with his own hands, what he can prove with his own intellect, what he can do with his own life. And that is what Solomon, our professor, is dealing with in our text this morning. I want to unpack this text uh, with three questions and answers this morning. Okay, I'll go ahead and give them to you up front. The first is, what is the professor's attitude toward achievement? What's his attitude? Secondly, how did he get that attitude? And thirdly, how did it change? Because if you'll notice, there is a change in his attitude as he moves through this passage. First question, what is the professor's attitude toward achievement? A review might be helpful because his attitude is being impacted by all he's already written and all the things he's already contemplated and thought about as he's been writing down this journal of sorts in the book of Ecclesiastes. You remember he begins in chapter one by saying absolute futility, absolute futility, absolute meaninglessness, vanity of vanities. Everything is vanity. He begins on that positive note by saying life is empty under the sun, apart from relationship with God, life is empty. It's meaningless. And much of the book is the professor showing us ways that he and we try to find an escape route out of meaninglessness, out of that emptiness, out of that futility. You remember he begins with that great statement that emptiness pervades all of life. It begins with monotony. It ends in death. Chapter 1, verses 2 through 11. And then he sets up to clear up the emptiness and find meaning through four different experiments. And we're on the fourth one today. Four different experiments. The first experiment, several weeks ago, Pastor Jonathan showed us in chapter 1, verses 12 through 18, how the professor sought to find meaning and seeking to understand life by wisdom. He made an academic pursuit in the mind. And he came up empty. He said that was meaningless. His second experiment, which I preached several weeks ago, was the pleasure experiment, where he found no lasting value in pursuing pleasure. So he gave up the life of the mind for the appetites. And he said, I'll go with, since I can't figure it out with my thinking, I'll go with my feeling. I'll trust my heart. I'll I'll examine these different things that I desire to do and see if in those things I can find meaning or purpose or significance or lasting pleasure. And he couldn't. Last week, Pastor Keith, chapter 2, verses 12 through 17, he found no advantage in being wise in contrast to being a fool. He looked at both of them. He said, there's the academic pursuit. There's the pleasure pursuit. There's the thinking pursuit. There's the feeling pursuit. What does it matter? Both of them die. So what's the point of being really smart or giving way to your impulses? Both are meaningless because in the end, both of the people die. And here he comes to sort of his conclusion, reflecting back on all that he has said. 
And he says that he finds no lasting benefit in achievement either. And that's our text this morning. So what was his attitude toward all of this? What emotions resulted from him pursuing all that he pursued up to this point? Two emotions, hatred and despair. You see those? The first one shows up in verse 18 where he says, I hated all my work. I hated it. He's already said he hated it. One verse before that, verse 17. Therefore, I hated life because the work that was done under the sun was distressing to me. He said, I hated it. And then, verse 20, he goes a little bit further beyond just hatred. And he says, so I began to give myself over to despair concerning all my work that I had labored at under the sun. So that was the attitude that he had toward all that he had been pursuing up to that point. It led him to hatred and despair of life. And let me tell you that if you, if you have not gotten to a point in your life, I'm talking about before you came to Christ, before you became a Christian, if, if you were not led to the end of yourself to the point where you were hating life and, on dis, and, and, and had some despair in your soul, I would say you haven't really thought about life long enough. You hadn't really thought about, you know, all that, all that you had been doing. See, we in our culture are very much inoculated to thinking about all of life and all that it means. Well, you know, we're just supposed to focus on what's right here, right now, what's right in front of us. What are we going to do today, 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 today? And we're discouraged from giving thought to, okay, so what will that mean in a hundred years? It's just all about the immediate. And Solomon wants to bring you up and outside your life and say, look at it all in light of the end, your death. Think about it then. And what meaning does it all have in the end? Who cares if you were popular or unpopular or you did this or you did that or you didn't do this or didn't do that? In the end, you're going in a box. So all these sort of emotions that have been brewing in him as he's been thinking about pleasure and wisdom and one being not even that much better than the other. And it just leads him to despair, to hatred. Second question, why did he feel that way? Why did he feel that way? And here's the summary. And then we're going we're gonna to find it in the text. He said, I feel this way because I'm going to die and everything I've worked to achieve is going to be left to somebody else. That's what led him to hatred and despair. All the energy that I'm expending, all the time that I am investing, it's not going to benefit me. It's going to benefit somebody else. So here's the three 
reasons that he felt hatred and despair. First, first one is in verse 18 and 19. And it's the fear and the realization that his achievements might not be stewarded that well when he's gone. Verse 18 and 19. I hated all my work that I labored at under the sun because, here's his reason, I must leave it to the man who comes after me. And who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool. Yet he will take over all my work that I labored at skillfully under the sun. This too is futile. Very simple. He says, what does it matter? This is the reason I hate my work. Because I'm going to have to take it and give it to somebody. And there's no guarantee of whether he will treat it poorly or well. Whether he'll be an idiot with it and squander it. Or whether he will take care of it with the same care that I have shown it. So reflecting back on all that Solomon's already talked about, all those buildings that he built and the achievements that he accomplished and the wisdom that he had and all the expeditions and adventures that he had in his life and all the things he was trying to do and get done. He says that in the end, when I'm in the box and I have to leave that to somebody else, how will I know how they're going to treat it? It could go to a fool or a wise man. And if it goes to a fool, my work's going to be squandered. It will not be stewarded well. His second reason is in verse 21, where he says, my achievements are going to go to someone who doesn't deserve it. Look at verse 21. When there is a man whose work was done with wisdom and knowledge and skill... And he must give his portion to a man who has not worked for it. This too is futile and a great wrong. It's evil that I have to do something and work and pour great wisdom and knowledge and skill. I didn't do this idiotically. I did it carefully and deliberately planned, invested, worked with wisdom, knowledge, and skill. And now I must give that to a man who has not worked for it. And he says, that's wrong. Why should I have to give it to somebody who didn't deserve it? So not only may my achievements not be stewarded well when I'm gone, but my achievements are going to have to go to someone who didn't even deserve it in the first place. You know, we say it this way. They woke up on third base and they thought they hit a triple. Ever heard that phrase before? That person woke up on third base and thought they hit a triple. And we scorn people like that. You know, they're walking around like they've done something, like they've accomplished something. And it's not you that accomplished it. You woke up on third base. You didn't hit a triple, but you're acting like it. And that's what Solomon's feeling right here. He's saying, I'm going to have to give it to somebody who's going to feel that way. And that's wrong. Why are they boasting about what they didn't even do? Why are they proud of something they didn't even achieve? And they're speaking of it like they did it. Solomon says that's a great evil. And then finally, his third reason, not only will his achievements not be stewarded well, his achievements are going to go to somebody who doesn't deserve it, but his achievements were fraught with difficulty and pain to produce anyway. He said it wasn't an easy road to even make those achievements. And that too is wrong. Look at verse 23. For all his days are filled with grief and his occupation is sorrowful. Even at night, his mind does not rest. This too is futile. He said, it wasn't just easy for me to achieve these things. I had to work at them. I put in sleepless nights. 
I put in discouraging days. And in the end, what? that's terrible. I had to labor for it uncomfortably. I've got to give it to somebody who doesn't deserve it, and they might not even take care of it. You see why he hated his life? And why he was frustrated? And why he was despairing over all that he was doing and spending his time doing? He said, I'm working at this. I'm staying up late. I'm going to bed er or going to bed er going to bed early. Staying up late. Going to bed late. And in the end, I have no control over what's going to happen with any of that. Phil Riken puts it this way. You can spend your whole life gathering a collection of some kind or building a business or making a home or establishing a school or amassing a large fortune, but you can't take it with you. Maybe you'll lose it before you die through some misfortune, but whether it happens sooner or later, one day you will leave it all behind. Your collection will go to a dealer. The contents of your home will be sold at auction. Someone else will manage your portfolio. Then everything that you've worked hard a lifetime to gain and maintain will be gone. This hit me really personally after my grandmother passed away in 1998. I had just graduated high school off to college for my freshman year. And... She had passed away and a couple, and for a long time, I didn't, I didn't go by her house because I would, I just didn't want to think about where I used to spend my weekends and the fun I used to have. And, but I decided one day I would a couple of years after she had passed away. Now I remember that house being, I mean, it was the pride and joy of my grandparents. They had lived in it for years it was paid off when they were both dead. The, I mean, I mowed that grass every week of my life <laughs> for a long time. I remember jumping on that fence. I remember trimming those bushes. I remember parking my car in that garage. I remember going inside and seeing how well they took care of the carpet and how well they took care of the doors and how well they took care of the floors and the roof. And I'll tell you what, when I drove past that home two years later, hatred overcame me and despair because of the condition it was in. I looked at it, the the grass looked like it hadn't been cut in six months. It looked like there was like broken parts of the windows. The shutters were hanging off. The garage looked like it hadn't been painted. The fence on the right side was falling down. And I thought they poured years into that home. And look at that. That's not how I want to remember my grandparents. And that feeling was what Solomon was feeling. Looked at that and said, look, they had no control over who was going to move into their house after they moved out. And look at what happened to it. Didn't take care of it. Didn't give it the same attention and love. And it's all for nothing. Like Monopoly, at the end of the game, 
No matter how much you had, no matter if you got boardwalk and park place and put four hotels on each and wiped out your brothers and sisters, it all goes back in the box, doesn't it? It's not really worth anything. It all went back in the box. But here's the worst part. We go in the box too. And there's no guarantee that the continuation of our work for good will continue into the next generation. Think of the millions of dollars that have been given by conservative evangelical Christians over the last 200 years to institutions which are now hard at work to destroy everything they stood for. Harvard University, Princeton University. I mean, those people cared. They worked hard. They gave money to those institutions. Let's put it this way. Let's make it real personal. You're giving money right now to support the work of a church that is doing gospel ministry. 50 years, we might not be. We might not be. I mean, I don't like to think about that. But it's true. There's no guarantee of that. So how do you feel about your investments? So Solomon begins to feel hatred and despair because his achievements might not be stewarded well. They might be going to someone who doesn't deserve it. And they're fraught with difficulty and pain to accumulate them in the first place. And that leads us to our third question. How did his perspective change? Because it does in verse 24. There is a shift in his perspective. And he says something that makes absolutely no sense. (laughs) It doesn't make any sense on the surface. Here's the same guy who said, I hated my work and I despair over it. And now says in verse 24, there is nothing better for a man than to eat, drink, and enjoy his work. What? You just spent two chapters talking about how we can't do that. Because it's all going back in the box. And there's no guarantees of anything. But you have to understand the shift in his thinking that's taken place to get him to say that. And that shift is explained in verses 20, verse 25. Starting at verse 24, there's nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and enjoy his work. I have seen, here it is, that even this is from God's hand. Because who can eat and who can enjoy life apart from him? Now, this is the first introduction in our book to the person of God. This is the first time he's, he's brought into the dilemma, to the problem that Solomon is wrestling through. And these verses explain how he came to have some measure of peace with reality. In light of the futility of his work and his achievement. And I think what he has to share, even though it's just a small insight, is huge in its blessing. And huge good news for us. And here's the point. The shift in his thinking 
went from a rewards-based way of thinking. I put this in. I want this out. I invested this. I should get this back. And he stopped thinking on the rewards-based way of thinking. And he started thinking on the gift-based way of thinking. He said, instead of thinking about what I deserve, I'll start thinking about what God has given Instead of thinking about all that I should have, what I think I should have, I'll start being thankful for what I do have. And even the ability to do that is a gift of God. The thing that leads us from hatred and despair to embracing the gift that we've been given or the gifts that we've been given is supernatural. He says that the ability to eat and drink, that's natural. Unbelievers can sip a cup and put a fork in a piece of steak and eat it. But in the end, to think about all that that's going to mean in 10,000 years, only the believer can enjoy that. Only the believer. So he says, life and labor are gifts. They're not rewards. So his counsel is, enjoy the basics of life. Don't focus so much on what's going to happen. Don't expect anything from the future. Just find enjoyment in today. Emptiness will not change, Solomon says. Under the sun, the futility that we experience, the difficulty that we experience, that will not change, and there's nothing we can do to make it change. We'll ruin our life if we hold on to everything for as long as we can, but instead, we must revel in the gifts for the fleeting moments that we have them. Here's what one writer said, quote, What spoils our enjoyment of life is our hunger to get out of life more than life can give. The possibility of enjoyment returns significantly only when the quest for reward is given up altogether and replaced by the notion of gift. Doug Wilson says, gift does not make meaninglessness go away, but it does make the vanity enjoyable. Gift does not make the meaninglessness go away, but it does make the vanity enjoyable. That's a great insight. Now, let me show you. I want you to take your Bible. We're going to go outside of Ecclesiastes for a little while. And I want you to go to James. And I want you to see... Three verses and see this pattern in James. James chapter 1. I want to just read three texts and explain from what I can understand the connection between them. First, verses 2 through 4, familiar passage. Consider it a great joy, my brothers, whenever you experience various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. 
But endurance must do its complete work so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. So point, expect, trials. Count it all joy when trials come, when difficulties come, when futility comes, when vanity comes, when sense of despair comes. Verse 19. Sorry, not verse 19. Verse 17. Still chapter 1. Every generous act and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow cast by turning. So we've got this every gift coming down from the Father. Consider it all joy when you meet trials. Those two are coming down from the Father for your good. So what are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to respond? James chapter 5. Verse 13, is anyone among you suffering? He should pray. Is anyone cheerful? He should sing praises. What's the point? What's the point? Gift is the point. It's not rewards-based thinking. It's not, God, I've done so much for you. How can you send this into my life? I've done everything you've asked of me. That is so non-Christian to the core. That way of thinking is worldly performance, reward-based thinking. It has nothing to do with the Bible and everything to do with our sinful hearts. We deserve nothing from God's hand. Nothing. You're living on borrowed breath. And we sin with it right in his face. Everything we have is a gift from God. The life we have is a gift of God. The enjoyments that we have during this futile, meaningless life in this cursed world are gifts of God. The potluck is a gift of God. Eat it and enjoy it with great thanksgiving and great joy today. That's that's what Solomon wants, and that's what God wants. And let everything you want to eat from that food that's going to show up here in a minute pass over your palate, gobble it down, swallow, don't anybody choke, chew it up enough, and then swallow it down and enjoy it to God's glory. To the max. And then when it's done, let it be done. Let it be done. Go on with your life. And don't insist that it be every Sunday. Job got this, didn't he? Job got it. You know how he was able to stand after his house had been destroyed? After his children had been taken away? After his whole income and livelihood had been stripped away? And why his wife is telling him to curse God and die because she operated on a rewards-based mindset, not a gift-based mindset. Job stood up and said, the Lord has given and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Why? Because he understood that all of life is gift. It's gift. God has the right to pull it out when he wants to. He doesn't sign any contract with you for how long he's going to keep you on the earth. 
or your children right where you want them, or your business or your job right where you want it. There's no guarantees. God says, I give it to you as a gift. Enjoy it as a gift. When I take it away, remember it was a gift. And isn't this the way that we get saved? Aren't we glad that God doesn't relate to us on a rewards-based approach to life? Because if we did, hell for all of us. All of us. But God doesn't relate to his creation on that basis. It's gift, which is why Romans 3.24 says that we are justified by his grace as a gift. And why he says in Romans 4, 5, to the one who does not work trying to earn my forgiveness and earn my approval and earn their own righteousness. To the one who does not work, but to the one who trusts him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Not to the one who works seeking to get from me an employee-employer relationship by which they pay righteousness and I pay eternal life. No, God says, I give it as a gift to the humble, broken, repentant center, sinner who looks to Christ alone. And then Romans six twenty three, a verse we all know very well. For the wages of sin is death. There's your reward. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. It's gift. It's gift. And so this is why Tullian Tavidgen, again in his new book, quoting him one more time, Christian Christianity is not first and foremost about the sacrifice we make for Jesus. It's about the sacrifice that Jesus made for us. It is his performance for us, not our performance for him. His obedience to God, not our obedience to God. The hub of Christianity is not do something for Jesus. The hub of Christianity is Jesus has done everything for you. Believe it or not, Christianity is not about good people getting better. If anything, it's good news for bad people coping with their failure to be good. The heart of the Christian faith is good news, not good advice, good technique, or good behavior. And that's true. So back in Ecclesiastes, very quickly as we wrap up, I want us to look at verse 26, the last verse in our text, and tie this all, tie this all up. Where do we get this ability to enjoy life in the midst of this meaningless world? For to the man who is pleasing in God's sight. Are you pleasing in God's sight right now? Are you pleasing in God's sight? Believer, you can answer that question 100% yes. Yes. Because God, if you are in Christ, if you have repented of your sin, trusted in Christ, are currently looking away from yourself and your achievements and currently turning away from your sin and disobedience and entrusting yourself wholly and completely to the Savior Jesus Christ for the total forgiveness of your sins and the impartation of a righteous record which you could not earn. If you are doing that, you are absolutely 100% pleasing in God's sight. No qualifications needed. 
Because he says the same thing about you in Christ as he said of Christ on the day of his baptism. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So get ready because this is for you. You're pleasing in God's sight. For to the man who is pleasing in God's sight, he gives wisdom, knowledge, and joy. Those are gifts of God to you. You get wisdom, you get knowledge, you get joy. You get the word of God given to you so that you can understand it. He's going to bless you. He's going to help you. He's going to transform your perspective so that you can live within this life and know that in the end, those who labor in the Lord is not in vain. You know that. Even though this life is filled with futility. But to the unbeliever, which he calls a sinner. We didn't invent that term. Christian church gets all kinds of hostility because we call people sinners. The Bible calls people sinners. We don't call people sinners. We just call people what the Bible calls them. And we call ourselves what the Bible calls us because that's all of us. That's me before I became pleasing in God's sight. And how I became pleasing in God's sight was not because of me. And how you became pleasing as a believer in God's sight was not because of you. It's because you transferred your trust to another person. And are basing your life on his life and your death on his death. But to the one who does not do that, to the sinner, he gives the task of gathering and accumulating in order to give to the one who is pleasing in God's sight. Here's the point. They're not going to escape the futility. They're not going to escape the hatred and despair. Unbelievers will not escape that gathering, collecting to just go give it to somebody else. The whole thing he's been talking about in the first couple of verses that led him to hatred and despair. He said, as a believer, we get out of that. We don't have to live in that sphere anymore. We can enjoy life as a gift from God for however long he gives it. But to the unbeliever who doesn't receive things as gift from God, but as rewards from God, they're going to be perpetually frustrated. Because they're going to be living in verses 18 through 23 without the hope of 24 to 26. And so there is advantages to being a believer, believer. (laughs) There is an advantage here for us as Christians. We don't have to slog through life saying meaningless, meaningless, all is meaningless. We can have a happy smile on our face while the world is crumbling down around us. We can, and we should. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this perspective from your word. Even this little insight from Solomon is good news to us. We thank you that all of life is a gift. Thank you for all the gifts that you've given. Thank you for the gift of food, which we're about to receive in a minute. Bless it to our, to our nourishment, to our, to our strengthening. And thank you for giving us the gift to enjoy it. In Jesus' name, amen.